This is someone who had a very individualistic outlook on and off the court. He didn't want anyone or anything to define him but him. And so he sees himself as a man, I think, of self-determination. Welcome into Montgomery and Company. I'm Renee Montgomery. College Hoops season is here, baby. And we got a college hooper in the building. We're also going to have a little MJ connection and I'll explain. So Johnny Smith is an author of Jumpman, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan. Yes, that's a mouthful and we're going to get into it. But we also have the first Michael Jordan NIL athlete in the building, baby. Kiki Rice, who is a guard for UCLA. They're 1-0 right now. She started out with a double-double, baby. We're going to talk to her. And, of course, we're going to have a little MoCo newsroom with the crew. We're going to go through a lot of topics. We're going to talk about a lot of things, and we hope you have a lot of laughs. Let's go! This week was the first week of NCAA basketball. That's men and women's. It's the kickoff week. The UConn men's basketball had banner night, raised the banner, won their fifth title last year, won the proud for six. UConn women's basketball started. I mean, that is everybody started, but of course you guys know I bleed blue. So I'm just saying the things about UConn, but I covered the Hall of Fame series, which happened in Las Vegas on November 6th. It was star studded. Ohio State played against USC. There's talents. And then there's like the top, top of the top talents. Well, USC as a university, they won the week in a sense of, they had the number one recruit in high school that signed with them on the men's side, Isaiah Collier. And they had the number one prospect recruit in high school that signed with them on the women's side, Juju Watkins. I got to see both of those stars shine on November 6th. I covered it in studio. It was on True TV and TNT. So they had the biggest of biggest stages and the stars. That's when they shine the brightest. That's what people say, like stars shine the brightest in the biggest moments. So whenever it's big moments, I always look to see what's the stars going to do, because we know that that's their time. Well, this was Juju Watkins first game in a college uniform. 32 piece nugget. I'm just not, I'm not even going to bury the lead. A 32-piece nugget. Lisa Leslie, who also went to USC, the legend Lisa Leslie, her record had been standing since forever, her first game. She had 30 points and 20 rebounds. Lisa Leslie, what are we doing here? You had 30 and 20 on your first college game. Like, I want to just make sure that I don't just pass by that. Like, Lisa Leslie, what? That is unbelievable. And then Juju Watkins now comes through and has a 32-piece nugget on her very first collegiate game, breaking Lisa Leslie's record. And her response was, I'm just so happy that that's a part of the USC legacy. She gets it, okay? USC, the school, won the week. Then I got to watch Isaiah Collier play on the men's side. And, you know, if people don't know, Bronny James also plays at USC. Savannah James was in attendance along with Bryce James and the crew. LeBron had a game that night, as you guys probably already knew. So Bronny isn't playing, but Isaiah Collier is. And boy, I tell you, Boogie Ellis is on that squad too. So shouts to Boogie Ellis on USC. Boy, I tell you this, Isaiah Collier, he's built for it. 
usually sometimes if freshmen come in, you can tell physically that they're a freshman. Oh, no, baby. This man is built for tough, built from the ground up. He used to play football. He talked about how playing safety is what helps him in his court vision. When you watch him play, he's just physically demanding. He's fast. He's quick. He can get wherever he wants to go. He can shoot. He's a superstar. So I say that to say that USC has two mega stars over there in Southern California. They won the week. And I, look, I don't know. I'm not saying that they're going to go on to win national championships, but I know that those talented players, these are superstars. You're going to hear their names. You're going to see them on commercials. You already see Juju Watson, the only basketball commercial. You're going to see them on more commercials. You're going to hear their names more often because these are superstar talented players. Also in the Hall of Fame series, let me just break it down. Normally your first few games of your college season if you're a top team, you're usually not playing against another top team. Usually those games like like this year, you saw wins by 50 plus. You saw teams winning by 50 plus points. And that's common on first games of the seasons when you have a number two team playing a team that is not necessarily established. That's what a normal beginning of a college season would look like. The Hall of Fame series that we covered on True TV and TNT, it was on Max as well. I don't like I feel like I need to say all those things because that's a big deal. Platforms matter. And it was a big deal that on those platforms, we had the number one ranked team, the returning champs, NIL queens that were playing on this network. So we had LSU Tigers going against the Colorado buffs right and so on paper you would think that this is a huge mismatch even though it was number one versus number 20 playing ranked opponents is not normal in the beginning of the season just fyi but these two opponents were playing and there was ranked opponents playing because this is the hall of fame series give the people what we want we want good games it's a risk to do that and the reason it's a risk to do that is because you haven't figured out like anything about your team yet you've only had preseason you haven't had your first game you're still feeling yourself out it's a risk so long story short LSU ends up losing to Colorado and to LSU's like defense Kim Mulkey literally said before the game she said and these are quotes she said Colorado was playing LSU at the right time she said I don't even know who our defensive stoppers are she said Colorado they're poised, they're built for it. You know, she said all the things that a coach would say, but those were literally all the things that were a problem in the game because it's the beginning of the season. So one, no, you're not going to panic if you're LSU fans, you're still talented. You still have probably the most talented roster in America right now, but you still know that, okay, this is a wake-up call. We have to wake up. We also know that South Carolina played Notre Dame in Paris. Okay. There was a, it was star studded out there. I love to see it that people went to Paris, Paris to go watch this game. And when I'm not just talking about family and friends, I'm talking about Joy Reed, Carrie Champion, Jamel Hill. I'm talking about like Angela Ra. Shouts to the Queens. Like, I'm talking about the squad pulled up to go watch women's basketball in Paris. South Carolina end up beating Notre Dame pretty bad, but it was a celebration kind of in the same sense because it was like, this is an international game in the women's game all the way in France. Like, wow. So that happened on opening night. And then last but not, of course, of course, not least, on opening night in college sports, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
the good part that I think that people just have to really recognize is that college sports, women's sports, it really is wild how much things are taken off to where our premier game, the best game of the night on TNT was LSU versus Colorado women's basketball. That's amazing. That was the best game of the whole entire game day. And that was a women's basketball game. And we had, you know, you had NBA players, which they always do. KD tweeting about the, the women's basketball games. It's the conversation happening for me. So I love it. Women's basketball is growing. It's starting to be a part of the everyday conversation. And we love to see it. We love to see the growth. I love to see it when it's in the WNBA. Cause after all, duh, and water is wet news. I'm a former college player, former WNBA player, even though now I'm an owner, I want all the things for us. So I want all the things for players. So that's what happened in college life. And then in the pro world, you know, the Hawks, this is the thing. We know that the Hawks have talent to win. I see it happening. A lot of times people want progress to be like, boom, everything's changed. But it's like, it doesn't work like that in sports. It's incremental. You see changes little by little each game. And little by little each game, I do see positive progressive changes for the Atlanta Hawks. I'm excited. I know everybody's like, everybody thinks I'm so crazy on the internet because obviously I pledged my allegiance to Atlanta sports. So that means Hawks, Braves, Falcons. Of course, y'all know the dream now, be for real. It's all the things like, you know, like United. I've just pledged my allegiance to all Atlanta sports. And people think I'm really crazy because I'm so optimistic. When are y'all going to learn? This is just who I am. Like, I'm always going to look at the glasses half full. It's my gift and it's my curse. I'm always going to be toxic positivity to where I got to find something positive in the situation because if not, what are we doing? You know, so to me, even when the Falcons lose, I, like, you know, I'm just still tweeting through it. It's always about the positivity because if you're an athlete, you have to create that on your own. You have to be a self-starter. Look, if you're an athlete and people on the internet are telling you how bad you are, of course you can't believe that. You got to be positive and talk nice to you. So that's just how I was built. Sports is a toxic place when it comes to people judging your every move. And that's just how it's going to be because that's sports. People are viewing it. People are taking it in, critiquing it, studying it, writing about it, viewing it, all of the things. That's what sports is. So imagine being the subject. Imagine being the subject of that. Well, that's what sports is. So if people ever wonder how I got to this toxic positivity place of life, it's because I just chose not to let negative comments or negative thoughts or negative any of those things enter into my universe. I just keep my lanes clean. We happy over here. So I'm happy. Even though I'm a Atlanta sports fan, I'm happy. And y'all already know I really still believe. Like, I'm going to believe until the season's over. I don't care if it's the... Dream, Hawks, Falcons, United, Braves, you name it! I believe, baby. We're joined by Johnny Smith, the J.C. Bud Shaw Professor of Sports and History and Associate Professor of History at the Georgia Institute of Technology, you're an author's author, but you recently wrote a new book on one of the goats of basketball, Michael Jordan, titled Jumpman, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan. So I'm just curious, like what compelled you to write about Jordan, especially from the angle of his perception, branding and image? Yeah, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in the 80s and 90s. 
And I grew up uh, a white kid in a predominantly white school. And my hero was the great black superstar of the Chicago Bulls. When I became a historian, I was really interested in the intersection of race and sports. I've written about uh, a number of black athletes, Muhammad Ali, Jackie Robinson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But I was thinking about my youth and the fact that in the in the late 80s, in the early 90s, Jordan was the first black athlete who was marketed toward kids, all kids. And we can think about the Gatorade commercial, Be Like Mike. I was part of that generation of kids who wanted to be like Mike. And of course, he was the face of Chicago, so he really shaped my youth in many ways. When I think about that commercial, the Be Like Mike commercial, I think about the images that I see. And it's Jordan out on the playground with kids of all ages, boys and girls, different races and ethnicities. And I think about what the NBA and Gatorade are doing that commercial. And I think they're doing two things. One is they're presenting basketball as the democratic game, the American game. It's a game of inclusivity. Everybody belongs on the court with Michael Jordan. And the other thing I think that they're doing is, is they're presenting him as a unifying force, that it's Jordan who brings those kids out onto the court. Gatorade was not the first company, though, to use children to soften Michael Jordan's image, to personalize him. Back in the late 80s, Chevrolet in Chicago, they had a commercial with kids. McDonald's did a commercial where Jordan shows up and he sits down at a table with these kids. And so there was this pattern of making Jordan into the everyman with children, surrounding him with kids. And it was a deliberate intention as part of what made him seem accessible. And for white America, I think that was a very powerful message that this was someone you could see as your neighbor, as your friend. And that's the way that he was portrayed in Chicago. That's how I saw him as a kid growing up, is that Michael Jordan was someone that would connect with you. And so at any rate, as a historian, I was really interested in how did race shape the way that Americans saw Jordan at the height of his success and fame, the way that corporate America embraced him, and also how race shaped the way that Jordan, who was someone who grew up in the South, in North Carolina, how he thought of himself. So those are some of the major questions that I thought about in writing a book about Jordan's pursuit of his first NBA title between 1990 and 1991. That's a mouthful because when you look at it, even now, look at where like we are in sports and how empowered the athlete is. Right. And you can see that there's athletes that for better or for worse, you know, some people don't like it. Some people like it, but athletes now can tell their own narrative, can tell their own story. What do you think like a Michael Jordan in 2023, would he have his own platform? Like, I mean, we know he's, we know I'm saying the Michael Jordan, the athlete that's going to have a brand like Nike trying to make him the most accessible. So back then it was pretty much commercials, right? But now we have podcasts, we have streaming, we have players making their own companies. Like just from your perspective, I'm curious, what would the 2023 (laughs) Michael look like when it comes to branding and becoming accessible? Boy, that is a really good question. I think he would be a little uncomfortable with revealing more about himself. You know, one of the things I write about in the preface of the book is the idea that Jordan created this mystique this distance between himself and the public. You know, it was one thing to film a commercial with Spike Lee and this Mars and Mike 
uh, gag that they had running for Nike, which was great. It was comical. And all he had to do was play the straight man, you know, deliver a few lines with, you know, without smiling or grinning or whatever. And people loved it because Spike was really the star of those commercials, but it endeared the public to Michael Jordan. I think the fact is, is that the corporate sponsors around him were successful in marketing an image of Jordan, personalizing him, but in ways where he did not have to reveal himself. So if you think about the era we're living in now, as you said, where athletes are much more willing to share their stories, cultivate those stories using different kinds of media. I don't know that Jordan would have embraced it in the way that, say, someone like Charles Barkley, a contemporary of his, Magic Johnson, a contemporary of his, Isaiah Thomas. I think they would have been more comfortable telling their stories in ways that Jordan did not. And so one of the things I write about in the book is that when Jordan was coming up, most of the sports writers who covered him in Chicago and on the NBA beat, they were white. There were very few black columnists covering the NBA in the late 80s and the Do early 90s. Do you know 90s. who they were? Like, who were some of those black columnists? Michael Wilbon at the Washington Post, he comes to mind. In Chicago, though, it was mostly white writers, except Lacey Banks, who was at the Chicago Sun-Times. He was a black writer, was very close to Jordan. He's no longer with us. And so his relationship to these reporters, like Sports Illustrated, it was the magazine, Outside of Roy S. Johnson, who was a black writer there and, and an editor who's now left the sports world at any rate, I think he may have been the only black writer at Sports Illustrated in the early 90s. My point is, even if my numbers are slightly off, in general, that was true. And so much of the public who's reading the newspaper columns, they're reading these magazine profiles, they're seeing them through the lens of white reporters. And what you notice in the pattern here is that Jordan is not a black American hero in these columns. Columns. He's an American hero. Race gets erased from his story. And so what I've tried to do is investigate how race shaped how Jordan saw himself as a young man coming up as a teenager in Wilmington, North Carolina, who certainly was confronted with racism there. And it shaped the way he saw himself and the way he viewed sport as an outlet that was going to get him out of the South, get him out of Wilmington, that sport basketball was going to be the way that he defined himself. That story, Jordan's place in America as a black man, that was not the focus, really. He was presented as an all-American hero, a universal symbol. Again, it goes back to this idea that Gatorade is presenting him someone as the universal hero who brings everyone together. And so Jordan struggles, I think, in some ways of, you know, there's some segments of society who want me to be the everyman for all people. But there's also some, especially in 1990, who want me to support Harvey Gantt in North Carolina. And they want me to speak out about the inequalities in Chicago, like Jesse Jackson, who was based in Chicago in 1990. So there's this tension, there's this pull. And I think Jordan would struggle to find a way to tell his story about where he fits in these discussions. He was uncomfortable with it. Jordan, we know, is very still mysterious in a sense of we don't know very much. There's still social media now because the way we're talking about him, it's like, yes, I know that Jordan is still running around, but there's still a lot of question marks. And we have The Last Dance, which, you know, was absolutely amazing. We know that air came out. So I'm curious, like if, if someone were to read your book, what kind of new information will you be providing them? I mean, he is mysterious. Mysterious, but we also do know a lot of the surface level things about Michael Jordan. It's interesting. You mentioned the last dance and you mentioned air. You know, let's start with air. We don't learn anything about Michael Jordan and air. That's the <laughs> story of, of capitalism merging with basketball. You know, it's a celebration of a corporate success story. Now, the opportunity was there to say something larger about what was happening in 1984. 
when David Falk arranges that deal with Nike, there wasn't much interest in NBA players doing endorsement deals. Converse had a, a range of deals with various NBA stars, including Julius Irving, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Isaiah Thomas, but they all wore the same shoe. There wasn't a line dedicated to one of those guys. What Jordan was attempting to do first with Nike and then with McDonald's and Chevrolet and some other companies is he was trying to break through. And one of the arguments I make about Jordan and trying to understand his mentality, why does he distance himself from civil rights, but he focuses on these singular individual achievements? Well, one of the arguments I make is that this is someone who had a very individualistic outlook on and off the court. He didn't want anyone or anything to define him but him. And so he sees himself as a man, I think, of self-determination. And so I try to explain where does that come from? And part of it is his roots in North Carolina. But part of it also is society. You know, in the late 80s, this is a much more conservative time than it is today. And even into the early 90s, you know, think about when Rodney King is beaten in 1991 by the LAPD. Everybody can see that on that grainy footage, right? It's sort of a moment that reminds us of the times that we're living in, sadly, where you see police officers attacking innocent, unarmed black folks. But nobody in the NBA takes a stand. Not Michael, not Magic, none of them. And reporters are not asking them about it either. There is not an expectation that Jordan or Johnson are going to draw a line, give a speech, or, or demonstrate before a game in any way. That was not the way that they saw themselves. They believed that the best thing they could do was be models of racial uplift in their achievements, achievements on the court, achievements in the boardroom, achievements as endorsers. They were not engaged in grassroots movements in the way that LeBron has been and, and Steph Curry and, and uh, Carmelo Anthony and so on. All these and guys magic have. even more later in his career. That's right. And so one of the points that I try to explain too, though, about Michael, and you can say it about magic, is that, yes, you could criticize them and say that they should have used their platform as players. OK, that's one argument. But the other argument is this. If Jordan in particular had been this outspoken activist during his career with the Bulls, he would never have had those endorsement deals. He would not have been embraced by America and he wouldn't have been able to build this incredible accumulation of wealth that made him the first player turned owner, billionaire of the Charlotte franchise. That wouldn't have happened. And once he got to that position, in his own way, he has contributed to causes linked to Black Lives Matter and to dismantling institutional racism, donating um, to HBCUs, for example, to journalism projects that advance the careers of young Black journalism students. He's doing all of that. And he's not doing it, though, on Twitter. And he's not doing it on Instagram. He does it in his own way. And it goes back to the mystique. You know, he's not someone who wants to put himself out front with his opinions and his views. But he believes that the accumulation of wealth is critical in advancing black America. And that's been his approach from the time he was a player and through being an owner. I mean, no, you hit on something that was very important where you can't really put people on until you get yourself on sometimes. And so it's like they really had to get to a point where they could be solidified enough to create change. You know how like almost where the airlines say, put your mask on first before helping others. It's like once they got their footing and once they got to a certain level of even wealth, 
that's when you can see like, okay, I'm here to stay. I'm about to speak my piece. I think that's what happened even in 2020 where athletes like this athlete empowerment, that's new because of course in the past, we knew that if athletes spoke out about certain things that they would lose their endorsement deals. And that, I mean, it was an understood thing. If you're an athlete, it was pretty much understood that if you speak out against some things, like you could easily drop left and right. I mean, we've seen it happen when people cancel culture, you know, we've seen it happen in general in a sense of if somebody gets canceled, you expect them to lose their endorsements. But I'm also curious because it's kind of the same, but not the same, but it's still branding with NIL in college. I'm just curious. What do you think that Michael Jordan would have been doing numbers wise at UNC in the NIL era? What, like what can your mind even fathom that looking like that's an era when nike is first beginning to create these branding deals with men's college basketball teams we think about gosh i don't know the exact year but it seems to me in my mind it's more actually in the late 80s you know north carolina georgetown with john thompson certainly and you know i think what's interesting in that period nike becomes a brand for black america through jordan and here's one example of why i say that in 1990, Jesse Jackson, who was at that time the the head of Operation Push in Chicago as a civil rights group, they wanted to organize a boycott of Nike. And Jesse Jackson's complaint was that Nike didn't have black executives. They didn't, you know, uh, advertise on BET or an Ebony magazine. And so Jesse Jackson, who knew Michael Jordan, wanted him to speak up. You know, he says, you know, come on, Michael. Nike's uses all these black players and their endorsements, you and, and David Robinson and, and these other NBA stars. Um, but what about the boardroom? And Jordan, you know, of course, he doesn't want any part of this. So Jesse Jackson overplays his hand, though. He's thinking that black Americans are going to see his argument and say, yeah, we're going to boycott Nike's. But polls showed in Chicago that black Chicagoans, they rejected this boycott proposal. Why? because they saw Nike as a company that was progressive, that they took a chance on putting Michael out front, that they built entire campaigns around black NBA stars like Jordan and David Robinson and Bo Jackson and, and later Charles Barkley. And so, you know, there's this identification through consumerism, consuming these products that are linked to Michael Jordan, Air Jordans. And so I think, you know, if you're asking me to go back even further about Jordan, the age of NIL, He's someone who really establishes this idea that you are your brand. And he did everything to protect his brand always, even as late as the 1980s, when reporters would occasionally ask him about racial tension in America. He admitted in one interview with GQ, he said, you know, sometimes I worry that if I slip up, that the white parents out there will tell their white children that I'm not a good example. And so that, I think, helps explain the decisions he he made to avoid activism, but also to protect his brand, because he knew this was a rare opportunity and that color line still existed. Johnny, I want to ask you about NIL. We talk about it a lot here and with athletes and the empowerment of athletes. And there's just so many changes happening right now in that space. So I'm just curious, like. You, you know what I mean? Like if you have any thoughts on just the NIL space and how the athletes are in it. My first book was about the UCLA men's basketball dynasty in the 60s and 70s. And the the star at UCLA in college basketball was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Then he was Lou Cinder. And 
one of the reasons I wanted to write that book is that that was the moment that the commercialization of men's college basketball just explodes on television. And it's really driven in large part by the incredible national interest in young Luel Cinder. And the reason I think about that when you're asking me this question is, for decades we have known that individual college athletes, particularly in men's college basketball and football, and certainly now in, in women's college basketball, they have a platform and they have an economic value. I think the challenge for athletes today is that they don't know their value. They don't recognize their value. Some of them, I think, are learning. The biggest stars that we're seeing are taking advantage of these opportunities. But I don't think they also understand their value as a collective. You know, right now, the NCAA is in a position where they're likely to lose in the courts in terms of what could be a collective bargaining arrangement between college athletes and the NCAA. And they better move quickly and try to arrange a deal where they're on terms with college athletes because the floodgates have been open. The system is being chipped away. And my hope, though, is that college athletes will continue to learn that they have leverage. Don't let coaches, athletic directors, and politicians legislate you to death and restrict your economic rights and your human rights. Where else do we see in the United States where legislators in the Senate and the House are negotiating to decide what it is you can earn? And I would also make the point that NIL, it's a second job for these athletes, right? It's already a full-time job to play in these big-time sports. I've got athletes at Georgia Tech. You Well, you know their schedules. Woo! It is a full-time job. We're booked. <laughs> My point is, young folks, educate yourself. You have power. Use it. You're stronger when you come together and you unify than you are as individuals. That that would be my message. All right. I have one more question. I'm going to let you go real quick. One more question. How do you think Michael feels about you writing this book about him? That's a good question. I tried to interview him. He said, no, I was not surprised, but I thought I got to try. I don't think some of the subjects he would want to talk about because historically he has not wanted to talk about, as we mentioned earlier, that he's not someone who wants to go in certain directions. And for me, it's easy to write about him in terms of his bath as a basketball player and his accomplishments. That's not what really interested me. What I wanted to understand is how did he create this mystique and why did he create it? What were his underlying experiences as a young person that were foundational that shaped his perspective about the world and the decisions that he made during his career? Why not denounce Jesse Helms, right? That's easy to denounce a segregationist, even if you don't want to give out, you know, to say, yes, I'm throwing my support behind uh, Harvey Gantt because it's the right thing to do. It will benefit the people of North Carolina. Jordan wouldn't have lost anything with that. But how do you know? Like, you know how he said he was worried? You know, like, how do you know that's what he was worried about? I mean, that was his quote. The reason I say that is that if we think about what Jesse Helms represented, Jesse Helms represents the legacy of segregation in North Carolina. No, I understand there's yeah. the right thing, but athlete empowerment hadn't happened yet. You know what I mean? Like, it's like we all could say in hindsight, you know, what we could have done. But it's just like it's so tough because I'm just curious, like, you know, he literally said you said in GQ his fear was that. Like, what if the the people stop following because I mess up or say the wrong thing and then I still can't have the impact that I'm going to have? Sure. It's like there's that catch 22. I'm not like, I'm not defending either way. I'm just saying like there's that catch 22 that athletes faced of do I say how I really feel and the fans are going to 
either gravitate to it or leave me? Or do I just kind of build as long as I can until I can be where I'm in the position to say what I want and it won't matter at all because I have the generational wealth, I'm in the position. So I'm just curious. I think what I'm trying to say is that in that specific instance, when it comes to Jesse Helms in North Carolina, I don't think he would have lost much, quite frankly, because of what Helms represented. Yes, he wins that election. There were certainly white folks in North Carolina who supported him. But I think on a larger scale about where Jordan was in his career uh, with his endorsements by that point, I don't think Nike's going to say to him, you know what? We're walking away from you. Look at all the things that Charles Barkley said as a spokesman for Nike. They didn't walk away from Charles Barkley and they didn't walk away from Spike Lee, who in 1989 produces a film called Do the Right Thing. Okay, you know, and people (laughs) thought it was going to provoke race riots. And Nike stood by Spike Lee. They continued to make those commercials with Spike and Michael Jordan. So I'm just trying to contextualize that particular moment in 1990. That's why I say I don't think Jordan would have lost even though he had those fears, which are real fears. I completely understand. I was just playing devil's advocate for a little bit, but I completely understand that. Listen, I love that you did your research. You know, like that's the one thing that like, if people are going to speak on something, do your research. And you have the book on one of the goats, Michael Jordan titled Jumpman, the making and meaning of Michael Jordan. Listen, I thank you for coming on and just, you know, talking about your thoughts, because obviously this is what we do here. We want I want to hear your thoughts on why do you have thoughts about Michael Jordan's thoughts? And I love that you explained it beautifully. So thank you for joining us here on Montgomery & Co. Oh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Okay, so Johnny just gave us some good perspective on Michael Jordan. And now we're about to talk to Jordan Brand's first ever NIL athlete, Kiki Rice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is out here. I saw you had your first game of the season. First of all, welcome to Boco, Kiki. I'm talking to you like people ain't here. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So you had your first game of the season against Purdue on Monday evening. You had 10 points and 10 assists in your season opener. Come on, Kiki. You started with a double-double. Like, I just want to like, what was that like to kick off your season off the right way? I would say it was great. Honestly, I just was so happy to be back playing again, like to be on the court and playing in front of fans. It was just like with our new team and everything. Um, it was just like, I know we've been waiting for this for a while. We've been training really hard. So it's just fun to be back out playing again. Yeah, I think the people don't get one because I think I probably heard four athletes say we've been training really hard, right? What is it like? I went through preseasons at UConn, as you know. So like for people that don't know, like when you say like preseason and training hard, like what's the past like six weeks look like for y'all to get to these games? It's been, shoot, it's been a lot of like conditioning, weight room, on the court, tough practices, a lot of like team bonding events, all the off the course stuff as well but it's just like 
I mean, we've been together so much these past few weeks and past few months. So it's just been like a lot of time together and like just working on our game and, and, and kind of getting ready for the season. But like to finally be playing, I feel like, like now we have the opportunity to put all of our hard work um, and, and let others see kind of, you know, what we've been doing. And so do you really feel like like that stuff, you know how like I, I say all the time, the people I went to school with, like we went through the fire together. People never been through college preseason workouts. I want y'all to really understand. It ain't no joke. Like you, it will break you. Like it can break you. You can feel like you can't keep going. You will be in conditioning and everybody catch a cramp. Like it's just like everybody's that tired, but you figure out a way to keep going. Do you feel like that helps y'all in the game? You know, when you're playing and does those type of things carry over? Or is it just, you got to just put up in the game? No, for sure. I think like, all the conditioning, all the hard work that we do, like before we start playing games, like honestly, we want to make that harder than the game is going to be. That way, when, once we get in the game and we get in those close, like fourth quarter games, overtime, all the kind of stuff, we're prepared for those moments and we know what it's going to take and what to expect. So if we can make practice a little bit harder than the actual game, I think, you know, we're not going to be shocked by anything when it when it comes to the to game time. Big facts. And that's why you're a gamer because you, you get it. And we saw a lot of freshmen uh, this year pull up and turn up. I mean, it was like, y'all weren't playing around, right? Like, so what do you think it is about this jump? Because this is this high school class that they stepped onto the college scene. And honestly, it looked like you belong. You've been here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I just think it's the confidence that, like, that everyone is playing with. Um, Honestly, like, you come in out of high school and and it's like, it's tough. College is going to be an adjustment. But I think um, you see all these young players, like, really highly touted like people know about them but it's just like okay you know my game and I'm gonna continue to be um best at the next level too so it's, it's really fun like seeing all the the freshmen that I know this year like coming in stepping up right away being you know looking like vets on their team already and then it was great just last year like seeing all my all of the freshmen that I came with it's like no, we're, we're ready for this. And just, everyone's been excited for college basketball for, for a while now. So to finally be playing um, in it, it's just, it's a dream come true. It's crazy because, yeah, you were the same. That's what I mean by we're starting to see, like, y'all coming in ready. And you had a, a teammate who is another phenom, London Jones, who played with you. Can you just tell me about, like, when y'all link up and playing with another good player? Because I played alongside Maya Moore in college. I played alongside Tina Charles in college. So it was like it made my experience that much different because like I'm playing alongside the best of the best and we're about to compete against the best. I think when you're like, I was able to come in with London. I I knew her before from USA basketball. So we played together before. And so like, we already have that connection, you know, like as we start our freshman year. And I think like we're on the same page about what like our goals are, what we want to achieve at UCLA and like how we can get that done. So I think it really helps to to come in with like to your school with a person that you, that you know, like you guys are locked in, you guys are on the same page and, ready to kind of take the program to the next level so what are you looking forward to then you know what i mean like this is everybody wants to go win a championship so i'm going to take out the obvious because we all want to win championships every single team playing what are y'all's goals as a team like what are y'all focusing on growth wise from last year to this year or what are y'all looking towards honestly this year i think one thing that we really noticed right away is like we have a ton more depth especially at the forward position and I think with like Lauren transferring from Stanford and now she's over here, like that helps us uh, out a lot because last year we didn't really have a big run protector like that. So I think we're really focused on like how now that we have like a big force in the post, like, okay, like how can we incorporate her and make her the best that she can be? And as a point guard, like, you know, for me, like this year we have a ton of shooters, a ton of like outside threats. So it's like 
how can they really like get efficient shots and like let the offense come to, to us and defensively. Ain't I that think, your job? Aren't you gonna be you gonna yeah, be the one? Ain't you what, gonna uh, be uh, <laughs> Yep, that's me. It's on me. <laughs> uh-huh. It's on me. So I gotta take responsibility and get that done. But I mean I think we have a ton of versatility, a ton of depth, which also helps like defensively. Yeah. Um, I think we're gonna be a really, really good defensive team. Yeah. So you know, I was joking with you because I always say like the life of point guards and the ones like we have to take a lot of responsibility, even when it might not be our fault, but we also are the ones that can orchestrate stuff. I want people to understand like your big lit, okay, Kiki, you re- you signed a deal to become the first NIL athlete signed to Jordan Brand. That's so crazy. I remember when Maya Moore, my teammate, became the first WBA player to sign to Jordan Brand. That was my teammate. So it was like, now I'm talking to you, the first NIL Jordan Brand athlete, man. How did, like, what are your thoughts when that was developing? Like, how did you even find out? Yeah, that was one, definitely one of like, the coolest moments of my life, for sure. I mean, like, to find out that I was officially going to be like a Jordan Brand athlete. Like, obviously, I grew up, you know, wearing Jordans, like, hearing all the time about MJ. And so, like, when I started talking to um, you know the people at Jordan Brand and, and just got to know them, like like obviously just from that like basketball perspective, you know everyone loves everyone loves Jordans and all that, but like I just fit. I felt like my priorities and their priorities were so similar from like an on and off the court standpoint. So like just the fit with their brand worked so perfectly, and it's been really cool working with everyone everyone at Jordan Brand, and it's like I've had so many incredible opportunities because of it. So it's really it's really exciting. And have y'all done like crossover stuff too, right? Like you've done like. You're in like the campaigns, like what? Mm-hmm, like, what mm-hmm. is that? Because isn't it WNBA players in it? The crossover and all that other stuff. So what's that like? Like what WNBA players have you crossed over with, or NBA players? Like what's that scene been like? Yeah, it's been really cool. Last spring there was like a woman's like all the like Jordan Brand like athletes a retreat for all of us. So I got to all the other like W players who are Jordan Brand athletes. I got to like hang with them and chill there. And I also I got to meet Zion one time, which is cool. Talk to him. It's a really cool group of athletes, honestly, and everyone's super welcoming and, and friendly. So it's been um, very cool to be a part of part of the brand. I love that. All right, so I'm just curious. Then I'm gonna, just a couple more questions because NIL. I mean, it's it's heavy on the scene. When I played, there was no NIL. I love that there's NIL now with y'all. So what do you feel like the like? Has it been difficult for you to balance both worlds in a sense of because people that have very strong NILs, look, UConn, Paige Beckers and them, I talked to her about this same thing. It's like you guys have whole careers and then also there's this whole world where NIL wants a lot of you. And so how are you balancing both those worlds? Yeah, it's so, it gets a little difficult at times, especially like during season, you know, your focus is busy traveling, all that stuff. You want to make it a priority to like, take advantage of the opportunities to grow your brand and, and build your brand in the areas that you want to. But it is like definitely something that you have to find, like keep in check at times because obviously basketball and school, they have to be the, the number one priority. But sometimes it does get a little bit overwhelming. And I try to like, I mean, I try to schedule everything out and make sure I'm not like making myself too busy, distracting me, uh, taking, like taking me, obviously not missing any practices, getting all that. Better not now. Um, exactly. <laughs> None of that. But it's a really cool like opportunity for everyone. I just think, it's really important. Like I've been focusing on like prioritizing it in the right way, but like in managing it so it doesn't become too much of a distraction from basketball. I love it. And so the Bruins are currently one and know the fourth ranked team in the country. Mm-hmm. You're sitting, I mean, you're sitting pretty good. There's a lot of teams. It feels like if there's any year where there's so much parity, I have no idea. Like anybody that's picking, there's no one that can pick a specific team this year. So is that a conversation that teams are having? Like this is an anyone's type of year. What's the conversation on your team right now sitting one and oh fourth ranked? Yeah, I mean, 
we've we've been trying not to focus on rankings and all that outside stuff just because we know we got to focus on our process day in and day out. But I mean, we know that we have the talent, the potential to be the best team in the country and to at the end of the season be cutting down nets. So I mean, we're just focused every day on like getting better and like progressing towards our goal. But I mean, we definitely don't feel like there's any team out there that's better than us. I love that. Listen, you gotta ha- you gotta believe it, and I feel like you believe it. Look, Kiki, I, I know that we're in season right now, so I didn't want to keep you too long. I appreciate you hollering at me real quick, and remember, you the one that gotta feed them. So if they yep, gonna eat, if they gonna eat, you gotta feed them. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you joining me here on Montgomery and Co. Thanks, Renee. Appreciate it. We're back at it with MoCo Newsroom, and we got a little follow-up from our Keith Lee conversation last week, and then Jay-Z settles the debate. The 500K or dinner with him, we're going to talk all about it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So we're going to get it popping, okay? We're back at it with the crew for MoCo Newsrooms. And we got a little headlines going on. As you guys know, MoCo Newsroom, we just hop from topic to topic. We got the crew with us, as you can see. Roy joining us. Gino, if you have anything to say, open your mic up, okay? Because Gino's the voice of God that you guys hear in the <laughs> background. He's our our voice, uh, our video producer that's on the, ones and two- <laughs> on the ones and twos. But he, when we have these conversations in our production meetings, he has so much good stuff to say so i'm just letting you know gino we are always welcome of some thoughts all right so let's get it popping headline number one that we're going to start with is a report came out from npr that this year was the costliest halloween on record americans spent and listen to this you all americans spent 12 billion dollars of which 700 million Went to pet costumes, of course. So (laughs) did you guys know that Halloween was getting numbers like this? How does Halloween compare to Christmas, Valentine's and Easter then now on your, you know, like holiday list? Because a lot of times people kind of considered Halloween like the little jokey, jokey, silly holiday. But twelve billion dollars, baby. I'm very sad. We've never had a trick or treater in 40 years at my house. (laughs) Wicked witch. But I think that I might need to get some dog treats because are the dogs showing up at the doors or are they being <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Treating. I mean, come on now. If they got a costume on, if they show up with someone. You better have something for them to eat. They do. Uh, oh, they that no, that's a thing. That is a thing. I'm telling you, I saw it firsthand. These dogs had the best costumes. They were beating out the kids. People were more <laughs> excited to see the dog costumes than they were to see the kid costumes. And just to jump on your point, Mom, Vance, I didn't think he was going to actually have a, a Halloween this year because we had football practice and the, we we're in the playoffs and the coach was like, I don't care what's going on. Y'all better be at practice. I didn't buy one. And then I went to the store at the last minute because the school said, oh, we're going to do a little parade. 
And there was not a costume in sight. Vance went with a costume that was two or three sizes too small because that's all <laughs> that was left. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You got my nephew out here looking like this. Yes. No, ma'am. When he Amazon was a very tight Grim Reaper. He was a very tight Grim Reaper. I'm happy. She didn't spend any of that. Uh, how much was, was it? it? Yeah, she didn't contribute 12 to 12 billion. million. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, yes, I did. I paid $25 for a black sheet. <laughs> Vance to be the Grim Reaper. Because he wasn't allowed to have a mask because it's scary. And I hope that your lesson was you should have ordered it two days earlier on Amazon and had your choice of anything you wanted. <laughs> well, I'm happy she wasn't part of the $12 billion crew. <laughs> oh, I was. Oh, yes. she was. Oh, I was. A small portion, but I still was there. Oh, they counted you in housewares. They didn't count you in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely contributed to the 12 million. I mean, 12 billion. Yes, y'all did. I, <laughs> I bought like three different Shego costumes. I didn't know which one I was going <laughs> to, I was going to like, and I ended up wearing all of them because I wore one for the photo shoot and I wore one to go trick or treating. Yes. We still go trick or treating. We have my nephew and stuff. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because she's adult trick or treat. I don't know what she talking about. My nephew. First of all, they give adult treats. Okay. They give jello shots and yes. they give, and they were actually giving shots of Coquito, which I was actually very surprised. I was like, Coquito on Halloween. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A bit early for that. huh? Yeah. But Hey, that's a, uh, Mariah said it's time after midnight Halloween. Let me go back time. and get one for her, by the I way. I agree. <laughs> that is time? Yeah, it's, it's Christmas time. time. for Christmas, yes. Yeah, I usually have my tree up by now. Yeah, oh, we so have on now. Not even at Thanksgiving yet. No, Roy, I have my tree up. Thanksgiving that doesn't Halloween even Christmas, exist, Roy. Really? It will be up, it'll be up by Friday. Oh, my God. <laughs> when are you going to put your Christmas lights up then? Next week. Oh, come on. <laughs> They'll be on the timer by next week. <laughs> I have two daughters who've not taken theirs down from last year, the Christmas tree. So this is a fact. But we had a Halloween tree for Halloween, by the way. OK, the bookie, man, the bookie man was at the top. We had pumpkins at the bottom. The a lot of people are doing that now. They're like the keeping man. the tree up and they're just they're just they're, I mean, just dressing it for the, the holiday. For the, the holidays. Season. Yeah. Yeah. I actually saw that from Leanne V. She's like an influencer online. I, I liked her. So last year she did like a, a Halloween tree, a Thanksgiving tree, and yeah. she did an Easter tree thing. Yeah, I, I don't I've know. I've seen people do Halloween. Yes. I've seen people do the fall with put pumpkins round. under them. I'm telling you. Have you seen the funeral tree? Roy is not with none of this. <laughs> no, this is tree. like when you're celebrating like five people's birthdays on the same day and they're all spread out throughout the month. Hey, we do oh, that too. On. It's a party. It's a party. It's a party. <laughs> hey. All right, we're moving on to headline number two baby it's kind of on the same theme but it's a little bit shocking because rapper diddy claims he received a cease and desist letter from warner brothers for his joker cosplay in halloween 2022 now this is a response to warner brothers saying pretty much diddy you can't dress like the joker anymore because they don't want your per i don't know like the cease and desist y'all know what it means i'm not going to interpret what warner brothers means but they sent him a cease and desist so this year Diddy rocks up dressed as Batman, baby. He has a Batmobile. He shoots a whole video again. And this is probably what they didn't like. When Diddy does Halloween, it ain't like when you and I do Halloween. When Diddy does Halloween, it looks like a feature film is coming. It looks like the trailer for the next movie. He's oh, rich. Need to get over it. If that's, <laughs> the, if that's the case, then they need to send every party city a season desist letter. Come on. They need to take everything that yeah. the kids wear in. I mean, come on. Man. See, I, thought, I thought it was a little much too. So that's they went too far. They just wanted they just wanted to say something. That's all. I just 
think that he he did too good of a of a job in playing Joker. I was looking at the videos and I was like, wow, he really does make like a great Joker. It's almost like scary good. Is people are I, crazy? Yeah, but to Snook's point, then I mean, they could send everybody one. Right. You know, all these kids with all job. these cameras making these videos and stuff like that. <laughs> all these artists who do the makeup and stuff oh you see them do their makeup avatar a lot up. of people do avatar and they look great trying to sue these five-year-old kids over here man <laughs> not like what are we doing it's halloween it's the one day every year we're allowed to be whoever. anybody we want we want to be wait a minute now like, come on with the blackface <laughs> oh, well. uh, nah, leave no. that one off leave none that one that. off no, none, <laughs> none of that probably didn't read the small print at the bottom of the letter where they were actually just trying to get him to be the production person for it. Oh, so <laughs> said, if you wanted to hire me just say that say so <laughs> moving on to headline number three a year after elon musk bought twitter for $44 billion, employees at the company were informed that the company is now worth $19 billion. Get your resumes ready. <laughs> Get your resumes ready. That was That's what that heads up was. 5% drop. There was a quote from an article that said, until now, employees at X have been working there without the knowledge of what the company is worth since Musk bought it. This stock award information finally answers that question. Though it seems that Musk valuation may still be too generous, one of his big investors, Fidelity, thinks X is worth 65% less than when he bought it. Thoughts, people, what's going on? Twitter's valuation has just plummeted. This man literally bought the company to put it out of business. That's how spiteful he is. And mm. like for real, That's for a real. theory. Well, I, I think uh, things that are happening out in our in our world today have rubbed off on him. <laughs> what? I'm scared to even ask what Stuck means sometimes. I'm scared. Cole, look at Cole's face, Cole. Well, I, I think uh, we're going through it right now where people are, are saying that things are worth more than they really are. So, you know, Ooh, okay. maybe, uh, you know, that's you where you're everybody taking. flexing. You know, yeah. they say they're capping, you know, stunting for the ground. I believe, I believe that. That's a good theory because there's a lot of these places where they have bumped it up and then they get in trouble because they have done that and that it's been found out that they was doing it and they weren't supposed to be doing that to um mm. the market shares and stuff and then they get in trouble so so they're i say that's what he gets numbers. that's what i'm saying i, I say that's what he gets yeah oh, okay i wish i could inflate my numbers i tell you i i'd be, I, I'd be doing some stuff if i could inflate my numbers mm. like, like the if average people could inflate their numbers look where we would be <laughs> We would really be out of business everywhere because <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's all the changes with Twitter. I mean, honestly, I still haven't updated my app because I don't want to see it say X on my phone. I still like it to say Twitter. So I haven't even updated it. I think it's just like people don't like change, first of all. And then you have something that was so great like Twitter. And then you are taking everything away that people like about it you know so i think that a lot of the users you know also don't agree with elon musk's ideologies i, I will just leave it at that there's a reason why they call him apartheid clyde but look at this <laughs> it's not even called twitter anymore yeah the yeah. x part is what gets me i'm like that was the first part that probably took about 30 percent of his downfall right there because <laughs> the it, it, it makes no sense there's no reason for it like twitter made sense they had a they had a whole thing going tweeting. It was it was catchy. Wiggly, wiggly. It was it. Wiggly, you're right. It, you had a whole thing going, and then X, and they just they changed it to X, and they had no explanation. 
No explanation. <laughs> no, it's like, why no is it X? Why did y'all call it this? And now it's not even tweeting. Is it still tweeting if it's X? Is it Xing? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Oh, I don't know. That's a little risque, honey. That's hilarious. Well, oh, well. I asked Renee about it. I said, what about those blue check marks? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't getting one there. You don't know who you talking to. Snook is concerned that she doesn't know who she's talking. This is a real concern. No, Snook that is, is a not, real thing. That's yes. not as savvy in a sense of she ain't reading everybody's full username where they might have added in a little different something somewhere. So Snook said that now that they've taken away the blue check concept, and she don't know who she talking to. That's a very serious question for people that, you know, may not be checking. And Gino in the chat said, watch Elon Musk interview with Joe Rogan. He gives a lot of reasons for all the stuff that he does there. So I would never pretty well, much. Well, nobody likes it. They down 65%. <laughs> they don't like it. Your reasons. Yeah. Point blank. Nobody likes it. Period. <laughs> the other thing about the X right now is I have Comcast Xfinity. So when I'm on my laptop, I stream, you know, the television or whatever. Unfortunately, the logo looks so much like X's logo that I accidentally logged oh. on to Twitter trying to go onto the TV <laughs> stream. So that's, that's a problem. Stupid. That might be infringement. That might be an infringement case. Right <laughs> yeah, look into it. A lot of people do that. You know, the X is a common theme. Yes. So. I don't know what that is. XFL. Weren't they in a lawsuit? With, I think it was wow. together, right? I thought XFL for it was X. Wasn't it like extreme? That yeah, extreme I mean, oh, extreme, extreme football leave. Yeah, oh. that makes sense. This X right here it makes no sense whatsoever. Xfinity is on the borderline. And why is the X black? Why couldn't it be another color? Yeah. <laughs> All right. And X on white. that note, we're going to headline number four, baby. <laughs> Former Bengals receiver Chad Ochocinco. He took offense a little bit to Keith Lee's critique of restaurants in Atlanta. Ochocinco went on his YouTube series, The Nightcap with Shannon Sharp and said, I don't like the fact that of what he's doing. I don't like the critiquing of our businesses. Johnson said, you know how hard it is for us to get in the food industry and to have our own restaurants. What are we doing? And then Keith Lee responded to Chad Ochocinco, implying that Ochocinco was likely unfamiliar with his work. He said, I watched this video and pretty much he said, listen, if this is the first time you're seeing me, why is it the first time you're speaking on me? If this is not the first time you're seeing me, then why is the first time you're speaking on me? And I was like, oh, Keith Lee. Mm. Keith Lee <laughs> ethered Ocho Cinco so Ether. bad that Chad Ocho Cinco's daughter took him on Instagram Live to discuss why would he do that to Keith Lee? <laughs> what was he thinking? And It'd Keith be your Lee, own kids. It'd be your own kids. Own kids. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so thoughts on the Keith Lee situation. And I mean, it's a common now because first of all Keith Lee's brand is so strong baby shouts to Keith Lee and his brand when you do good then people know you have good intentions people are not going to watch people tear you down for no reason if anybody knows what Keith Lee was doing to his point he's made restaurants thrive brought them back oh, from the dead absolutely. and then so this it only ha yeah. went bad when he came to the ATL y'all mm -hmm. <laughs> what y'all doing down there ATL I, I want to say this let me just say this I'm with Keith Lee. I love how he responded, number one. Number two, I feel like that was your wake-up call. Like if that, if you needed, sometimes when these places get so big and they have so much 
work and they have so much thing, have so many things going on. They feel like they don't have to improve on anything. And that's not necessarily true. And number three, the fact that Keith Lee actually did a review where the food was not what he thought it was. He always gives some type of positivity to every food place that he kind of touches. So the fact that he said, y'all need to do better. Y'all, y'all really, I couldn't really find anything because I couldn't even get my food. You know, that's something that really, I'm pretty sure people in Atlanta have experienced too. He can't go in there and just tell a whole lie. He didn't even get the food. <laughs> he already told the people he's going there that he didn't even get the food because they were asking him about it. They were asking him. So, <laughs> and Paul said in the chat, people going after Keith when he could put them to sleep in two seconds. <laughs> That's true. That man that is true. restaurant streets. Some hands are lethal weapons. Okay, like he, he's a he's a former UFC fighter, correct? Right. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, in this culture, if you say something bad, that might bring more people than if you say something good. Sometimes hey, it does. Not when you're talking about food. You can't oh, never yeah. be bad oh, with yeah. food. Oh yeah, people <laughs> say, "Well, I'm going over here just to see." That's what true. Talking about they're gonna go over so. there and sit two and a half hours. That's on them. That would be yeah, well. Apart, no, so. they're gonna try to beat it and and make a, a wise decision and go where they have a better chance of getting in before two hours is up. <laughs> oh, okay. I think anytime that anybody calls out anything, I think people are going to have a reaction to it. You know, like Keith Lee, he he spoke his truth. And of course, people are going to have some kind of pushback towards it because it, it reminds me of, who was it that spoke out about the HBCUs that everybody was also in an uproar Ed about? Ed Reed. Ed Reed. Okay, yes. It reminds me of that situation because it's like he wasn't... He wasn't necessarily lying you know and so people were really mad that he was calling out all of the bad things that was going we're on. gonna revisit that too <laughs> because we haven't heard anything uh chad johnson or chad ochocinco like he shouldn't be <laughs> talking smack about anybody for a person who goes to mcdonald's every single day oh, <laughs> and for those who are familiar <laughs> chad does. ochocinco promotes his mcdonald's diet he says it's what helped him be a top receiver it's what helps him get his calories up He's very vocal about his. He's McDonald's. also very frugal, and they call him very cheap. He, they said that he does not want to see won't spend that much money for the food, so it wouldn't matter anyway. So there you go. Yeah, he's liking that mamba sauce they got there now. Mamba sauce, <laughs> mamba. <laughs> if y'all, if you I know. ever say names and things wrong, I'm gonna tell you who I got it from right there. My snook of book, Australia. You. S- <laughs> You, you said the bookie man, like you're making bets or something. I mean, like, I think that Keith Lee's comments should be taken in and they be they should people should be held accountable. You know, it reminds me of Frank Ski. He went on his morning show and he also um, a restaurant owner, a previous restaurant owner. He owned a restaurant over here called Frank Ski in Atlanta. And he said that he will never, ever open up another restaurant in Atlanta because the food service industry in Atlanta is not really up to par to other state standards. And I'm sure that he, you know, that's his personal experience, his personal truth. And I'm sure that some people were mad about those comments as well, because he was commenting on how this whole situation got so serious that more than a dozen Atlanta restaurant owners, they came together to meet. They had like a town hall meeting. Did y'all know that? 
Yeah, they literally, they literally had like more than a dozen restaurant owners. They came together and they were talking about how to better the Atlanta food industry because this they, was they it, it was such boy. a big deal. Yeah, they had, they had a players only meeting. Yes, literally, they had a come to Jesus, Jesus meeting. meeting. Let's yes. sports plane this here, people. Yes, Roy. So the sports plane is if you guys don't know, the Bulls, the Chicago Bulls, lost their first game of the season so bad they got a whooping so bad that they had to have a come to Jesus meeting after the first game of the season. Keith Lee was on his food tour. What he does, he had his stop in Atlanta. The the scene got toe up so bad that they had to have a players only, <laughs> restaurants only, come to Jesus meeting to talk about what we gonna do here, y'all. Like, we in some trouble. We gotta figure things out because if y'all don't know what happens in these come to Jesus meetings, I'm gonna tell you right now. It's a lot of accountability and it's ugly. It's, you start looking around the room. I'm gonna look around the room right now and I'm gonna have an accountability meeting with my team right here. Snookabooka, we don't have buttons that mute us. So when you be sneezing and doing and all this stuff they can hear you okay i chew this is accountability meeting i just tell you jesus very seldom shows up at <laughs> hallelujah this is what happens in meetings where it's like hey 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 everybody this ain't a laughing matter because we got real problems here we just got whooped keith lee just whooped us the other team just whooped us serena we're gonna have to hear more from you we love your point of views cole you gotta keep being just say it how it is all right because people People will agree with you the most, actually. You are the voice of the people, Cole, because you say the logical thing that people think all the time. Snookabooka, we want to hear your multi-generational thoughts and all that sassy whenever you had the right breakfast. We need that snook every time. You better keep coming on camera. Roy be always acting like he don't know about topics and then come in here and, yes. and be in the chat and have a wealth of knowledge on a topic that he just told us he didn't know nothing about. Right. Renee, right. I come on here and I foul people. That's what I do. <laughs> well, Roy is our bruiser. He coming in here. Take one for the team. Take one yes. for the team. If you haven't followed him on social media, I'm telling you right now, Roy is out there throwing yes. bows. This is what happens in accountability meetings. For real, though. And people go around one by one in the room. So you I like tell it. me. I like it. <laughs> It, I like it. That's a it's called constructive criticism. I've been in some corporate meetings it, right? where I see people just almost be sick, turn green. I like it. Mm -hmm. Let's go. What you got? Right, tell me, me what I got to work on. I'll receive that. I love it. See, y'all are all coachable. So we're going to move on to the next topic because that's a real thing. Now, I don't know if the people in the restaurant meeting were all so coachable. That's the thing about they those come to Jesus meetings. You got to be receptive and willing to change because clearly what we're doing now ain't working. That's why we having this meeting. Keith Lee benched them. Yes, somebody about to lose. You about to lose your, your job. job. <laughs> Headline number five, baby. This will be probably the last one we do because we've been running our jaws and just having a good time. But Jay-Z, we're going to, this is a follow-up conversation because we had the Jay-Z conversation where Jay-Z finally put an end to that 500K or dinner with Jay-Z debate. So in case y'all didn't know, just a refresher, people were really on Beyonce's internet asking folks, would you take $500,000 or would you rather have a dinner with Jay-Z? And Jay-Z himself said, you gotta take the money. Jay-Z said, noting that all the wisdom anyone might glean from talking to him over lunch is already available in his lyrics. You, oh, you get all of the information you need from me, he said, for $10.99. Now, first of all, look at that businessman. He said, right. listen, you, you like, buy my records. Open your That's ears. all you got to hear. Listen. 
Please close your mouth and listen. Exactly. That's what we said last time. We said, well, you know, he already put out the blueprint. He puts out all this content that people should consume. He puts his life into words. And so if you're really paying attention, he really does like tell you everything that you need to know through his I work. don't care if he had the blueprint in his music or not. I am not giving up no $500,000. Yeah, that's what I'm Thank saying, that we should take Thank the $500,000 because we already know, we could get all the other information out there. <laughs> no, I don't care if he didn't have two cents worth of information out there. I was never going to actually pay. I would take the money from beginning. I told y'all from the beginning, I said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard because <laughs> you still walk away broke just because he tell you what he did. Information. I just want the money. <laughs> yeah, right. Forget it. And I mean, the only way that you could take that dinner and make some money off of it is you jumped off the cable uh, across the table and tried to give him a smackaroo on the mouth and had a cameraman there to take a picture of it and try to sell it to the media. That's the only way. <laughs> it ain't worth $500,000. I don't care. Well, I don't care. How, who are you kissing? <laughs> yeah, are y'all kidding? Oh, she literally just came up with that. From having dinner with Jay-Z. That is the wildest thing you could say. <laughs> I would say if I was going to have a dinner with Jay-Z, and I'm listen, I would take the money. Let me just say this and make sure people understand. I'm taking my money. You better come right. You better come right. I'm taking my money. But if I were to have a dinner, I would not do what Snook did and jump across the table and kiss him and have a photographer waiting there to catch the photo, post it on the internet and go viral. I would not do that. My plan would be I would write a book. I would make that book a movie and boy, oh boy, would it be stories for ages. And do you know what stories would be in there? Everything in his lyrics, because he already said that that was going to be something like, guess what Jay-Z oh. told me? He told me about this investment deal and it would be lyrics that I heard. That dinner could have been one hour, but I would have 15,000 hours worth of content because that man has given me a green light. I'm just saying, if you was going to be crazy, because I'm taking the money, I have to keep saying that. If he was going to be crazy, you got to just make some content out of it. Snooka Not a publicity stunt. My goodness. <laughs> What's wrong with her? <laughs> like I said, I said it from the very beginning. I said, whoever goes and sits down with that man and walks past that $500,000 is a fool. And guess what? Jay-Z agreed with me. He said, right. y'all a fool. Take that right. money. I, I don't care what blueprint. he. I don't care if he had a stairway <laughs> map to the bank itself. I, give me the money. Like if, if anybody offers you $500,000, you take, take it. it. Take, take it. it. There's no human you'll it. go to dinner with over $500,000. Ever. <laughs> it, it, there's never, never, ever going to happen. It's not. I love that. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure I agree. So on that note, you guys, <laughs> I'm joking. But no, that, I mean, I agree. But I think that's a lesson learned because I love when stuff starts on the internet. It gains so much energy on the internet. And the internet just knows they're right about a certain topic. I mean, this could be a topic that somebody, even the person is an expert in this topic. Jay-Z is an expert on Jay-Z. And then there were some people that even when Jay-Z said, take the dinner, they told Jay-Z he wrong. So that's why I don't argue with the internet. I'm gonna just tell you right now, people that stood 10 toes down that it would be a good decision and valuable to have dinner with Jay-Z. Even when that man said, take the money, the internet was doing what the internet does. They ignored the facts. They ignored the logic. They ignored the expert talking about a topic that they know about. And the internet decided that we're going to take our opinion as the truth, even though 
the man said, take the money. They said he's not seeing the bigger picture. So I'll just digress digress and let the internet have their wins. Sometimes you got to let the internet be the internet because Jay-Z tried to tell y'all and y'all still want the dinner. Lord of mercy. Yeah, don't argue with the internet. Don't be like me. You know, Jay-Z had a quote that said, everything that I said was going to happen, happened. Everything that I said I wanted to do, I've done. That's a crazy statement. But if you're an athlete, it's kind of not so crazy because in the world of athletics, we believe that you speak your life. Like, so if you think you're not going to make a shot, of course, you're not going to make that shot. How could you make that shot if you don't think you're going to make that shot? And so in the world of athletics, there's a certain level of realism that also pushes your drive. Jay-Z, when he said everything that I said it was going to happen, happened. It wasn't just because he said it. It was because of the energy he put behind it. He said it because he knew the energy that he was going to give to that action. And everything that I said I wanted to do, I've done. The reason that he did everything that he wanted to do is because he made sure that happened. I can understand that. Like in the sports world, how does an athlete go from being young, dribbling in their backyard to thinking like, all right, maybe one day I'm going to play in the pros. And I don't care what sports you are. You could be baseball. You could be football. You could be basketball. How does an athlete go from being one of one million and make it to the top, make it to the drafted group, make it to that 2%? Well, of course they said they they wanted it to happen. Some people even was bold enough to say it was going to happen. Everything that certain athletes said was going to happen did happen, but it wasn't just the mouthpiece of it. It was the actions. It was that action and that work behind all of that. So I don't know, when I hear artists talk, it's such a through line with, with sports. This is called sports plating in a sense of, man, like whenever you say something, saying it just isn't enough, but it's good. It's a good start because you have to believe it first. But if you say something, you got to still make it happen. You got to still put in that work, that grind, that 10,000 hours that nobody sees. People love to say somebody's an overnight success and they've been putting in 10,000 hours that you never saw for their break and they was ready because you can't want for something and not be ready when it happens. Everything that I said was going to happen, happened. Everything that I said I wanted to do, I've done. Jay-Z Carter. It really is a generational thing with him. We'll see y'all next week. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.